Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Spencer Greenberg on the show. Spencer is an entrepreneur and mathematician and founder of SparkWave, a startup foundry which creates novel software products from scratch designed to help solve problems in the world using social science. For example, scalable care for depression and anxiety, technology for accelerating and improving social science research. He also founded clearthinking.org, which offers free tools and training programs used by over 250,000 people, which are designed to help you improve decision-making and increase positive behaviors. Spencer has a PhD in applied math from NYU with a specialty in machine learning. Spencer's work has been featured by numerous major media outlets, such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, The Independent, Lifehacker, Fast Company, and The Financial Times. Spencer, it's great to chat with you finally on the Psychology Podcast. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So many topics we can dive into today. Really appreciate your very clear-headed brain. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> and all the different projects that you apply that brain power to. So I want to start off with a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart and brain, and that's the effective altruism movement. Mm -hmm. I really want to, once and for all, understand the effective altruism movement. It's very interesting to me, and I think a lot about it and how I could apply it in my own life and the decisions I make on a day-to-day -day basis. Would you mind defining to our listeners, maybe those who aren't that familiar with the phrase effective altruism, what does it mean and what are some of the main goals of the movement? Sure. Well, I certainly can't speak for the whole movement, but the way I think of it is as a community of people that's interested in the question of how do you do the most good? And uh, so if you kind of break that apart, 
you know, part of that is about what actions actually lead to the intended consequences, whereas which actions maybe don't achieve their intended consequences. And then it's also about defining, well, what do we mean by doing good? Right. So so you might have one nonprofit that's trying to increase education for people in the United States, and you might have another nonprofit that's trying to prevent people from getting malaria in countries with high malaria rates. And you might have yet another nonprofit that's trying to reduce risk from, let's say, viruses spreading around the world. And how do you how do you compare these things? How do you how do you think about what are the best things to do? Yeah. And what role does emotions play in this? Is the goal to not think with your intuitive gut reactions, but to think it through as rationally? Is rationality the key to this? Well, I, I would definitely not say that it's a movement that's anti-emotion by any means. In fact, I'd say a lot of people in the effective altruism movement feel that one of the most important things in the world is how people feel. In, in other words, that a major goal is to try to create people that are happy and not in suffering. And so, so in that sense, emotions plays a very large role. But I think where you can be more skeptical of emotions is around the way that you try to decide how to help the world. Because sometimes our, our emotions can be really useful in helping others, like it can, you know, if we have compassion for other people. But other times our emotions could lead us astray, where, for example, we may be more interested in trying to help the puppies that we see because they're really cute than help, let's say, factory farmed animal, which might be suffering a lot more, but you know, it's not as cute. I mean, we don't identify it as much. So sometimes our emotions kind of can lead us to doing less effective actions that don't help the world as much. I see. Okay. So in your own life, can you give me an example maybe of a cause in the world that you care about that you've kind of applied some effective altruism to? Well, one cause that I care a lot about is mental health because I believe it's a really major source of suffering for a lot of people. And so at my company, Sparkwave, we worked a bunch on this topic. Um, and so, for example, we created an app called Uplift. And the goal of Uplift is to try to help you cure your own depression by giving you evidence-based techniques that you can apply. Um, another example is we made a product called MindEase, which is for helping people manage their anxiety symptoms, because our research indicates that actually most people with high anxiety don't have a reliable way to calm down whenever they need it. So, you know, how does this tie in with effective yes. altruism? Well, basically, right now in the world, there's just a massive problem of people with mental health not with mental health challenges not getting the help that they need. So that's kind of where the effectiveness piece comes in and says, well, what if we could provide something that you could do from you know the ease of your own cell phone? Anyone in the world could potentially use it. Maybe that could actually help reach very large numbers of people that aren't getting help right now. Okay. Well, that's very, very important, obviously. And I know that you've thought me perhaps uh, more than anyone else I know of about behavioral change and, and sort of the mechanisms that are most effective and testing out which ones are some most effective versus others. I mean, a lot of people have theories, right, and about how we can help this mental health issue. But you've, you're, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're really into data, like you're really into like, and trial and error as well. You're not afraid of trial and error. You're not afraid of it. Yeah, I guess. You want to kind of see what is going to work in large scale. Yeah, I guess I believe I believe very deeply that the world is incredibly complex, right? So almost any time you have. No. <laughs> really? Well, you know, if you, I, I mean, it seems obvious, right? But on the other hand, a lot of people posit extremely simple theories for what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. And I think that these simple theories are just plain wrong. I think that every 
political worldview that says, oh, the problem with the world is X, the way you fix it is Y, is wrong. And because the world is so complicated, and so to really solve problems in the world, rather than adhering to a simple ideology, what you have to do is you have to study the world very carefully. You have to try things out. You have to see how they're working and be sure to, to notice when they're not working properly and you need to adapt. And so that's where I think being data-driven comes in, uh, that if you really want to solve problems, you, you sort of have to look at the data very, very carefully. Absolutely. So you have looked at the data carefully. What are some recommendations you have for how people can improve their lives, even in like depression? I know that you've looked at the importance of if-then rules, for instance. I know that's a really an important, that's sort of the, the language of our subconscious. We can kind of bypass our conscious route by having really well-developed if-then principles in our associative network. In what ways have you kind of used the if-then rules to, to help people with mental health issues? Have you applied it in that domain? Right. So I think that this kind of if-then rule, sometimes they're referred to as implementation intentions, where you say, if this the following thing occurs, I'm going to take a certain behavior. They can be really powerful, powerful for many areas of life, and they, you know, from health, learning, happiness, even kind of rational thinking. And so what I recommend to people is that they try to think about a handful of rules where there's a clear-cut situation where they're currently engaging in behavior that's not ideal, that they know it's not ideal, it's not making them happy, it's not, not improving their life, and then they kind of set an intention to change that with a new behavior in that situation. So just to give you some examples, it's really simple, but every time you wake up in the morning, go into your kitchen, why not drink a tall glass of water? Like, that's probably better than, let's say, drinking a soda or drinking nothing. There you go, your tall glass of water. Or, you know, let's say right after you finish drinking your, you know, morning water, what, if you have some part of your body that is prone to injury or really tight, why not stretch for one minute, right? I actually managed to, to you know, cure a shoulder problem I had mostly doing this. So that, that's just really, really simple. But then you can start applying it to more uh, advanced things that might really improve your happiness, improve your relationship. So an example of this, every time you take your first bite of a meal, why don't you take a moment to savor and really appreciate that, that you're having that food and enjoy it rather than just kind of eat mindlessly. Or every morning when you get out of bed, why don't you think of one thing you're grateful for? And that can actually really start changing your attitude towards your life. Or with relationships, let's say you're, you're starting a conversation with a new person, you can set attention that as soon as that you begin that conversation, you give that person your complete unadulterated attention, um, which can really improve the quality of your conversations and relationships. So I think there's just so many things like that where we can kind of set these, set these rules for ourselves and, uh, and really improve our lives. Good. That's very good. Have people like used your program to apply this for depression? Though I did, I did ask you about depression. Uh, so we don't. So for depression, we don't specifically use this kind of like if-then methodology. But there are some things that are kind of similar to that. Like so, we do apply. So in Uplift, our depression program, we apply some techniques from behavioral activation. And so for depressed people, they often tend to predict that they're not going to have fun doing activities. So for example, uh, you know, someone's depressed, their friends call them up and say, "Hey, why don't you come out tonight?" or maybe Snapchat them more realistically today. Uh, and they think, ah, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm going to be a downer. So they, they don't see, see their friends. And this creates a cycle because now they're at home alone all night. Maybe they're playing video games or doing something else that they feel is not very productive. Uh, and they feel worse about themselves. And then also it makes them more distant from their friendships. And over time, it can spiral out of control. So behavioral activation says, okay, you might not think you're going to enjoy this activity, but you should still do the activities that you enjoy anyway. And so you can kind of reframe that as an if-then rule. Like, if I am about to avoid an activity that I normally would enjoy, I should do it anyway. Because, you know, being in a depressed state, I can't necessarily trust my intuitions about what I'm going to enjoy. Oh, I love that. That seems related to me to Daniel Gilbert's research a little bit on affective forecasting, Yeah. but applied within the depression domain. That is really makes a lot of sense. 
Also, you know, I don't know if this relates at all, but I know we're both interested in the topic of introversion. And I think there's some research showing that when introverts are forced to be more social, they actually enjoy it more than they would have predicted. Oh, really? They, they'd enjoy it. Yeah. So to a certain extent. And then, you know, if you have them engaged too long, then they want to recharge the batteries. But right. they underestimate the extent to which they'll enjoy more gregariousness. Yeah, well, you know, you and I have actually collaborated on <laughs> on research yeah. on introversion. I thought that'd be a good segue. Yeah, exactly. I that'd be a good exactly. Segue. And I thought that was really fun research, looking at kind of different subcomponents of introversion, because you know, like any um, of these large personality traits, you know, you can kind of, as you know, obviously, you can decompose it into kind of these subparts, and depending on which of those subparts you're higher in or lower in, it might actually change. You know, let's say how much you might actually enjoy being forced into an extrovert situation. So if I recall correctly, in our research that we did together, we found that there were sort of three subcomponents of introversion that typically are all correlated to each other, but but not necessarily in every person. The first being social, like do you like spending a lot of time with lots of different people and do you talk to strangers and that kind of thing? The second being sensory, like do you get bothered by being in a large crowd? Do you get do you get bothered by loud noises and bright lights and things like that? And uh, let's see, what was the third one? Third one is reflective. Do you like spending you know, long evenings sitting alone, pondering things? Do you tend to act slowly and carefully or do you tend to, rather than sort of acting quickly and impulsively? And, uh, and I think we found that you know, all of those are feeding into kind of what we call introversion. It's true. What you said is true. <laughs> and this test is on Susan Cain's website. Yeah, yeah. You so you can out. actually, yeah. if you want to take, take the test. We decided on two factors, though, at the end of the day, stimulation and deliberation. Yeah. So the reflective part, I think, is the deliberation thing. The sensory is the stimulation. On that test, interestingly enough, we left out the social one because yeah, it loaded yeah. so strongly, I think, on the sensory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for a lot of, that's a good point. For a lot of people, I think the social is like the thing that they think of often when they're thinking of introversion. Yeah, you know, and 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 they don't realize introversion is a a more broader construct right. than just that one aspect. And the whole well, the whole personality domain uh, is a hierarchy, you know, and it depends what level of the hierarchy you want to talk about. There is a level of the hierarchy in which just introversion makes sense, which but it encompass. You have to realize that it encompasses lots of different what are called aspects, which are two. You would have two aspects, and then below aspects you have facets, and then below facets you can get unlimited. It's just researchers have not come up with enough measurement tools to uh, capture all the infinite facets and yeah well you need also larger and larger data sets to keep cutting it up right (laughs) that's right well you've you've looked in the personality domain and what are some rare unusual personality traits that you've discovered in your work that you don't think the big five model of personality which is the standard personality model for for people who haven't heard of it capture yeah yeah so for those who who don't know too much about the big five the big five is, is is you know standard gold standard model of personality very often used in scientific research says we've got these five traits, openness, extroversion, conscientiousness, emotional stability, and agreeableness. And that uh, unlike, you know, the Myers-Briggs that wants to put you in a type, the big five says you have these factors. Each, you have a score on each of these five factors. Um, and uh, But one thing that, that I feel pretty strongly is that the big five is not the be-all and end-all of personality, that there are other traits that it doesn't capture very well. Even though it's a, it does a really good job as like a simple model of personality, that only requires you know knowing five numbers about a person. You know it does leave some things on the table. And so one of the things that that I found seems to be missing from it is, um, for example, humorousness, which doesn't seem to very strongly load on any of the personality traits, at least in the those studies that I've run. 
humorousness doesn't yeah. load on any of the I, it doesn't I fit in any of the big five well i haven't found that it loads very strongly i think the max correlation i found was something like r equals 0.2 with, with the big five traits like openness to experience we it's correlated yeah yeah it, it has it has a little it does have some correlations but i um but in my experience it, it doesn't correlate that strongly another one that i think is really interesting is um being sex focused so people who tend to focus a lot on sexual things um, we found that it just also, again, doesn't have strong correlations to any particular of the big five. And were there sex differences on that? Yeah. So, so one of the things that's kind of interesting about that trait is that we, we found that that was, that was the personality trait we found the largest difference between men and women. Well, that's very interesting. So that probably has societal implications if it's that striking. And then probably at the tails, maybe you see some striking differences as well. Did you look at the tails of that? Yeah, trait? yeah. So, so the the sex focused trait. Um, it's just to just talk about that a little bit more. It, it has questions like, um, if you see an attractive person, do you have sexual thoughts? Oh, or, or how often do you think about sex? Uh, uh, questions like that. And what we found is, well, none of the personality traits we looked at had a very large gender difference. We did find that that trait had the largest gender difference of any personality trait we studied. And indeed, at the tails is where you, it looks really extreme. Because sort of on average, men and women just are not that different in any of the personality traits that, that we've looked at. You know, if you look at the extreme, like the person who is, you know, in a room of a thousand people, the person who's most sex focused is very, very, very high likelihood that that is a man um, because of that kind of tail difference. Okay. Well, that, that does, that is very interesting to, to think that that's the state of the world that people are walking around. There's such a dramatic difference between so many men kind of looking at women in a sexual way. And you're saying women are not as high in, in looking at men in a sexual way. Well, David Buss would agree with you. David Buss's evolutionary psychology research and would put that within this evolutionary perspective. But that is very interesting that uh, that is, uh, and, and, and I would say unsurprising. <laughs> well, well one, one thing I think it's worth noting about that is it's a lot easier to say, okay, we gave people personality questions and we found this difference in the U.S. population at this particular moment. So, so that's relatively easy to do. What's a lot harder to do is say, why is there that difference? And I think it's extremely hard to figure out why a difference like that would be found. I would also add that even even though that difference seems to exist in self in self-reported personality, it doesn't mean it's not changeable, right? And so one of the one of the examples I find really interesting is like height, right? Like so people think of height as like, oh, one of the, you know, the prime examples of something that's like genetic and predetermined, right? But actually height is very uh, environmental influence. So if someone doesn't get enough nutrition when they're young, that their height can change dramatically. Um, so that's just one example. So, so, you know, I just want to note that all we're saying is that in personality tests today in the United States, we do see that difference, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we know why it occurs. Right. But I'm sure people, people would have lots of explanations. Oh, I'm sure. For why it occurs versus cultural versus, well, cultural evolutionary interaction. Yeah, exactly. Not, exactly. Not, just one or, not just one or the other. Okay, so let's talk about psychological immune systems. Is that a phrase you coined, by the way? As far as I know, I coined it, but it's totally possible someone <laughs> else has used it before. I, I've never heard anyone else use it. Um, yeah, so I, I got thinking about this topic, which I found really fascinating, which is when people deal with a really hard situation, as we all inevitably will in our lives— um, how do they cope with it? What are the things that they do? And I and I started to try to categorize all these different techniques people use for coping, and I ended up grouping them into sort of five different major categories of techniques that people use to cope with difficult situations. The first is kind of techniques around facing reality, and so a, a couple examples of those would be like looking for distortions in your in your thinking around the situation, like am I you know am I exaggerating how bad it is? Am I exaggerating? 
you know, how long this problem will last. And that is a classic kind of cognitive behavioral therapy technique. It's also often used for helping people with depression or anxiety. Another like kind of face reality technique would be trying to accept a bad situation, trying to say, you know what, I can live with this. I can deal with this. I can, I can sort of accept the state of the world. I don't need to rebel mentally against the state of the world. So that, that's kind of the first category of facing reality. The second category of like psychological immune systems that is, is feeling-based strategy or emotion-based strategies. And so one of these would be like expressing your emotions. For example, journaling about how you feel about the situation or telling a close friend how you feel about the situation, which a lot of people find cathartic. Another feeling-based strategy or emotion-based strategy would be using exposure therapy, where you will expose yourself to bits of the thing that you fear and keep yourself in that situation until your fear starts to dissipate. And so a classic example of that would be, let's say someone had a traumatic accident and is now afraid of cars. Maybe that they'll start, even though it makes them really anxious, maybe they'll start sitting in a car until they get used to that and that no longer makes them anxious. And then maybe they'll move to the next step of actually driving a car and so on. So that's category two. Category three are kind of act-based or action-based psychological immune strategies. So one of them would be like doing activities you enjoy, like behavioral activation, which is something we talked about before. Another example would be throwing yourself into something you value. So maybe you're going through a really diff- difficult time in life. So you're going to pick something that's really, really important to you, and you're just going to work really hard at that thing. And I would say that ACT therapy has elements of that. I don't know if you're familiar with ACT ther- therapy. I am. Yeah. I've had uh, Stephen Hayes on this podcast. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So Twice. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So you're very familiar with that. Yeah. But tell our listeners yeah. a little bit about uh, yeah. ACT. Well, tell, tell them. I'm certainly not, not an expert in ACT therapy, but I think ACT therapy, I would, I would say, is a little bit of a reaction to cognitive behavioral therapy, where cognitive behavioral therapy wants you kind of restructure your thoughts around a topic. And ACT therapy says, hey, you know what? You can still have thoughts that are you know, stressful thoughts, upsetting thoughts, and so on uh, about a topic. You could just you don't have to take them seriously. They're just thoughts. Thoughts are not reality. And you learned a bunch of techniques around like letting your thoughts come and letting them go and not taking them too seriously, but also being sure that to not let your thoughts stop you from acting in a way that you value. So continuing seeking your values, even if you have thoughts that you're not good enough or thoughts that stress you out, et cetera. That was, that was good. Yeah. All right, great. Yeah. So that's, that's the first three categories. I'll, I'll just do the last two. So then the, for, the fourth category of psychological immune system is refocusing techniques. So that would be like, okay, this bad thing's happened to you, but you're going to try to be really grateful for things you do still have, right? Or trying to stay optimistic and just and kind of think optimistic thoughts about the future. Finally, the last kind of big broad grouping is reframing-based strategies. So this would be like trying to take this bad thing that happened and think about it differently. So a classic way to do this would be to try to find a silver lining in the bad thing that happened or find some meaning in the bad thing that happened. Or to try to think about, well, this could have been worse, right? You know, this bad thing happened, but what if it, you know, it could have been much, much worse than this um, so, so I can cope with, with what actually happened. So those are kind of the five big, big categories I found. And I think it's really interesting to think about, like, what are your psychological immune system strategies and are there other ones you could benefit from? I love it. I love it. How much do you include um, problem-based coping strategies, problem-focused yeah. I think there are different yeah, kinds. I would put those probably in the, the uh, acting one. So if we're talking about um, uh, problem, problem-focused kind of uh, strategies where you're actually going out and trying to actually make a plan and saying, how am I going to solve this problem? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Versus more emotion-focused. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, that's a framework I need to really think about process. If you could send me more uh, materials on it, yeah. I'd really like to look at those. So is there anything else in the personality domain? Before we go to uh, dive more deeper, even into behavior change, is there anything more in the personality domain? Well, one thing that you and I have discussed a little bit, which I, which I uh, recall you might have found interesting, is that so we were, we were considering the question of the big five traits, you know, consciousness, openness, agreeableness, et cetera, 
um, are they inherently valence? In other words, do people view them as like inherently good or bad? And so what we did is we, we did this study where we actually tried to write questions for the big five traits, but reverse the valence. So we, we tried to write questions that, for example, made agreeableness seem like a bad thing and conscientiousness seem like a bad thing and openness seem like a bad thing, et cetera. And what we found is it was extremely difficult to do. In other words, not only was it hard to write the questions, but even when we wrote them, they actually didn't correlate all that well with the original big five. And so that, that led me to sort of think that maybe there's a sort of fundamental valence to a lot of those traits. And it's hard to kind of strip out the valence without losing your ability to like make useful predictions about a person. Well, this is really interesting, uh, but it might be a little too abstract for our listeners. Can you give me one item that's on the big five and then give me an item that is the opposite valence yeah, so yeah. That they can have a concrete example? Great question. Yeah. So let's say we have conscientiousness. So you might have an item on the big five like I'm an organized person, right? But that kind of makes you look like like good. Like most people think it's good to be organized. Um, but on the other hand, let's say you try to flip that around, try to make conscientious look bad. You might have a question like, I need things to be in their proper place, right? And so that's what we try to do. Every kind of question, we try to flip it around and make it look like a bad thing. <laughs> but you know, what, one of the things I think is kind of interesting about that is that I think people do have a sense of each of the big five traits being good or bad, and that people generally do agree about that. But I think at the extreme, the big five traits pretty much always become bad. Like imagine someone who's conscientiousness, who's very conscientious, right? Most people would say, oh, that's a good thing, right? But imagine someone who's 99.999th percentile conscientiousness. Like that person probably has to have everything so organized all the time that it's probably at that point dysfunctional. So the way I think about it is like, while the valence goes up as you get higher in these traits, at some point it's kind of kind of fall off a cliff eventually when you, you could just get too far. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying. You know, as you know, conscientiousness has multiple aspects, facets. Yeah, yeah. So orderliness is one of the aspects. The other one is perseverance yeah. or, uh, you know, um, grit, someone called, you know, grit. Yeah. Now you're saying you're making a claim that being in 99 percentile of perseverance as it's measured by the big five may not have the same consequences as being in the top 1% on your more extremely valenced wording of it. So so maybe that big five researchers have not fully realized the negative consequences of the upper tail because they haven't actually really pushed the upper tail as much as they think they have? Well, that... well I would say with the upper tail, you get two problems. One is that you have ceiling effects. Right. Like, you know, is your test even sensitive enough to measure who's at 99 percentile versus 99.99? And it's hard because they might both score the same score on a lot of tests because they just both put, a, you know, a, you get a seven on your like, you know, one to seven scale. But you just don't have that sensitivity. But the other problem is there's so few people like that that it's actually hard to find them. And so, you know, in most data collection, you're not going to have many of them. But, yeah, my, my hypothesis is that at the extreme levels, the big five do become pretty harmful to people. So I think that this is really um, interesting and can link to, to other literatures. I mean, it's interesting because Adam Grant and Barry Schwartz have published a paper on how most character strengths have U-shaped, you know, U-shaped curve. Where So you might want to read that paper. Oh, cool. I didn't know about that. It sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. They argue that almost all traits basically apply to this U-shaped curve function. So, And they present some data on that. So I think that would be a relevant paper for what you're arguing. But I think that's really cool that you tried to test that. And um, I did find that uh, discontinuity between the big five framing and the more extreme framing. And and so I am thinking about all the, the sort of possible occasions of that. So so much of this stuff in the personality domain is contextual based on what is your placement on the other traits. So some other traits can 
be I'm just trying to add some more nuance to this yeah, right? yeah. And, and and let me know if it's relevant at all. But it seems like there can be protective factors if you are ex- extreme on, on one of the traits. So I think your argument could hold if you take one of these at isolation. But, you know, for instance, openness to experience in the extreme in isolation has been shown to be correlated with psychosis and schizophrenia. Yeah. But intellect seems to offer a protective factor against that. Oh, that's really interesting, um, yeah. So I think that perhaps also next evolution of your research, maybe looking at whole trait distributions as opposed to single traits. And uh, Marco Del Gucci is doing some cool research on calculating like capital D, which is looks at like how different populations, different groups differ on whole distributions of traits. Yeah. Taken as a whole, a whole gestalt. You know, because we are—that is—we're all gestalts, right? We're not like, I'm not a walking IQ. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a, a really interesting point, and and I think related to that, and this this gets back to something we were talking about before we we uh, started this call, is the idea that different personality trait kind of vectors uh, are useful in society in different ways. So so for example, um, you know, I think in, usually people say it's good to be agreeable. I think a lot of people feel that way. On the other hand, I think low agreeability people actually have a very important role in society because I think they tend to call out bullshit and not take crap from other people. And so maybe you have a bunch of agreeable people who are like, oh, okay, we'll just deal with the fact that this makes no sense and is not a good way of doing things. And the disagreeable person will be like, this is stupid. Why are we doing it this way? Right. And I think that's true for a lot of the personality traits that there there's different roles in society played by people with different traits that, that can be really valuable in society. Yeah, I'm trying to reduce my agreeableness by 25%. Oh, really? <laughs> it's too high. And I think I also think it gets in the way sometimes of, of real authentic, authentic conversations mm. that could really be beneficial. Now, on the Psychology Podcast, I want to keep it pretty high in the sense that I want to respect <laughs> and my, my guests. But in my daily life, I, you know, in general, I, I could see one making the case that there's a optimal zone of agreeableness. And perhaps that should be studied more. What are the optimal zones of each of these traits as well? I think that's, you know, an interesting this line of research. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's also going to be dependent on your environment, right? Like someone who worries all the time, if they're in a super safe environment, that, you know, that maybe is just not that helpful. But let's say someone is actually, there's really dangerous things out on the horizon that have to be planned against, you know, a warrior might help save that, you know, <laughs> that society. So, you know, I think it really depends a lot on what context they're in. I agree 100%. I agree 100% with that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk some uh, tricks for forming new habits. Maybe take an example. I want to stop picking my nails. Or how about I want to reduce my uh, – is agreeableness considered a habit? Like if I want to reduce my agreeableness levels, would, would you have some tricks for forming new habits where I am more cantankerous? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I haven't done research on that, but uh, we have done research on forming daily habits like exercising every okay. day or – you know, st- stretch every nails. morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, more like, uh, you know, uh, creating a habit of writing every evening before bed, that kind of stuff. And we actually ran a, we ran a big randomized control trial where we actually, uh, each person in the study, if they were not in the control group, they were assigned five techniques out of 22 at random to try to get them to form a new habit. And then we tracked them over a month to see, we collected about 1200 feedback surveys from people seeing how well they were sticking to their habit. And then we analyze all that data. And, uh, you know, while it's only one study and you know, should, and any one study should always be, you know, treated with caution, uh, we did have a really interesting result, which is one of the 22 techniques just crushed all the other ones in the study. Um, and that technique is a technique we call uh, habit reflection. And it's, it's really, really simple. Basically, if you want to form a new daily habit, all you do is you step one, you think about a daily habit you formed in the past 
then once you've done that, you take a minute or two to write, literally write down what you did that helped you form that previous habit. And then the th third and final step is you take another minute or two to write down how you could apply what you learned last time to this new situation. And we an analyzed actually what people were writing. And it turned out like people were coming up with all kinds of different techniques that worked for them. So it's kind of like a self-adapting strategy that's kind of adapting whatever worked to you in the past to you in the future. Cool. And you found some um, effective, like it's, you found this as effective. Yeah. Well, it, it, in our, in our study, it, it very firmly beat all the other techniques, the other 21 techniques we tested. So, Whoa. yeah. Have, have you published this in a scientific journal? No, we have a blog post about it. <laughs> but we have <laughs> This stuff should be in the psychological literature. You know, because like Angela Duckworth is doing some great work at Penn and at War with her colleagues at, at Warden on uh, behavior change. Yeah, I'm really interested what, in their studies, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, they're really interested in this concept of uh, a stickiness. Mm-hmm. You know, like which which of these uh, behavioral change interventions will stick, and and I just think you have so much to contribute to that literature that like it should be part of their work. Uh, anything I can do to help build that bridge. I appreciate it. That's great. Well, to to, uh, to your point, so if you go to, on our website, clearerthinking.org, a lot of our research we actually we not only write blog posts about it, we actually build it into free tools that you can then use. So you can apply the techniques to yourself. So we have a tool called Daily Ritual that lets you literally apply the results of our study to your life. And we have about 30 other free tools that uh, apply all different areas of our research to your life. So you can go go check it out. Clearthinking.org. That is clearthinking.org. Clearthinking.org, um, sorry. Yeah. Clearthinking.org. Got it. Yeah. Cool. That these are free resources. How do you how can you economically sustain that yourself personally? Well, we just, <laughs> are you independently we just, wealthy? We just run that as a not for profit project. Like a bunch of our projects are for profit. Um, but that one gotcha. that one is just one we host for free just to try to help. Basically, they would, that, that project came about because we found all this really cool stuff in the academic literature that we felt people weren't successfully applying to their lives. So it was, you know, sitting in a paper, and but people weren't really using it. And so we started out trying to take those insights from academia and then help people use them in their own lives by building these like free interactive tools that kind of help you think about how to apply it. But then what we started realizing is that some of that research in academia, we have to do this kind of trans translation research to actually make it like really practical, turn into like a real tool that someone can use. So we started actually running a lot of our own studies to kind of do that translation work as well. That's so awesome, Spencer. I mean, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> okay. So how do you approach mapping out why behavior change is not occurring? And I think that's in, as just as important a question as when it is occurring. Do you have a framework about that? Well, I, oh, I, yes, we do. We do, in fact. We, I know. We, it's a leading question. <laughs> we created, we did create a new framework. It's called the 10 Conditions for Change. And you can find our website if you go to sparkwave.tech, so .tech, you can find it there. Uh, but basically, the, what the 10 Conditions for Change framework is, is, is we, we try to create a sufficient set of conditions for behavior change to happen. So in other words, there's these 10 conditions, and the idea is that if all of them are met, it's very likely the behavior will occur. And what's cool about that then is if a behavior is not occurring, you can kind of go through the 10 conditions and say, well, is it condition one, is it condition two, is it condition three? And you can try to pinpoint 
the different causes of the behavior not occurring. And the way that we kind of break that up is we divide, if we think about creating like a new complex positive behavior, and let's say like going to the gym every day or something like that, there's, we, we break that into three phases. There's the decision phase where you have to consider doing the behavior, desire to engage in the behavior, and intend to engage in the behavior. So those are the first three conditions that you need to meet. And then after that, you have to take a series of actions. Like you have to pick out what gym you're going to go to. You have to buy gym clothes or you have to go to gym, the gym on Monday. You have to go to the gym on Tuesday, et cetera. So this is like the action phase. And during that, there are six conditions to meet. There's, you have to remember to perform each action. You have to believe that attempting each action will help you achieve your goal. You have to choose to do, actually do each action instead of other available actions. You have to know how to perform each action. You have to have the needed resources and permission to perform the action. And you need to embody the skills and traits needed to perform each action. So that's kind of the, the action f- phase. And then the, finally, you have to continue doing this stuff for a long time. So that's a continuation phase. You need to maintain all the attributes required to perform the action over time. So, so that's kind of the model. And then we, on our website, so if you go to sparkwave.tech, you can learn all about it. And it actually, what we've done is we've categorized hundreds of behavior change interventions and slotted them in based on condition. So you can say, oh, I think it, the problem is that people are not remembering to perform the action. That's condition four. So then you can pop that open and you can see like, you know, 50 different strategies helping people remember things, that kind of idea. Cool. <laughs> I just want to do it. I mean, it's one thing to just hear it, right? And, you know, theoretically, yeah. but to actually go through it. So I, I can do it on your website. Yeah, yeah, right? go check it out. And the other thing that I'm, that I'm really excited about with that website is at the bottom of the 10 Conditions for Change website, we actually went and we tried to find all these other behavior change frameworks and write really concise summaries so you can learn about them quickly. So we actually have, I think, about 16 of them summarized at the bottom of the page. Excellent. Do you want to to give the tell people the link for the specific page for that or yeah if, sure sure it's uh, yeah. sparkwave.tech um, slash conditions hyphen for hyphen change thank you thank you and if you want to email me that link as well I'll put it in the show notes sounds great we'll do that um, so let's end here today with some practical tips where people can practice to spark their creativity this is uh, creativity matters too and we both we both agree on that one sounds great yeah I'm just listening to you. I'm just going to sit back here. Hey, I want to hear your creativity tips. I mean, you're the creativity man. You know way more about You can stuff. interview me someday. Okay, someday right. you can interview me. But <laughs> but good. now you're in the spotlight. You're sure. in the spotlight. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I mean, creativity is something just, I think it's just so important because it, it's so central to solving problems, to generating new ideas, all those kinds of things. <laughs> um, that was my creativity dance. Yeah. So I don't know. How, I mean, obviously, you're the expert in creativity, and I'm not sure how you think about this, but I like to think about it in sort of like two subtypes, like what I call it structured creativity, which would be like the creativity of like solving a math problem or of like a business challenge where you have like all of these constraints around the problem and you're working within this very well-defined kind of space, but you still have to be creative to come to a solution. And I, I, I'll contrast that with what you might call unstructured creativity, where maybe you're creating abstract art or you're doing poetic writing and you're kind of like, you're trying to produce an effect or a feeling or or express something, but you know, you you basically are operating under you know many fewer constraints in, in the creative process, and uh, and so I have some I you know I have a, I, th- I like to think about what are the tricks I use, what are the ways I try to try to get more creative, and so I have a few in each of those categories. So it, under uh, structured creativity, um, one of my favorite techniques. So if you're trying to let's say try, solve a business problem or solve a math problem is to start by ignoring quality. So you, you just, I like to set a timer, let's say for five or 10 minutes and just say, let me come up with all the ideas I can come up with in, te- in five or 10 minutes, but not think at all about how good they are. Just completely separate that out. And later I'll come back and I'll consider how good they are. 
So that's one of, one of my. I love that. I love that. Just to pause yeah, yeah. pause there yeah. a moment. That's one of the defense mechanisms that Valiant George Valiant uh, talked about as a healthy adaptation to life. Uh, oh, nice, so. cool. Yeah, I didn't, hadn't heard about that. Yeah, and so I mean, I think when people try to evaluate the quality while they're coming up with the ideas, they tend to shoot down an idea too early, right? So if you kind of separate the process of evaluation from the process of generation, I think that's really helpful. Another technique that that is a little bit counterintuitive that I really, really like is adding extra constraints or making the problem more specific. So suppose you're like, okay, I want to come up with a new idea for a product. It's so vague that it's actually really hard to even think of anything. Whereas if you say, okay, let me make it more specific. I want to come up with a new idea for a product that you can keep in your pocket all day long. Right. And that actually can, perversely, I find it can often be easier to think of kind of the more specific case than, than the more general. The third technique that, that I find really useful is it's the opposite. It's actually you remove constraints. But sometimes constraints make it hard to come up with ideas. So, so let's say you're trying to solve a business challenge and you have all these constraints to worry about. You've got human resource constraints and budget constraints and so on. And you, but you could say, okay, let's just imagine for a moment I had no budget constraints. I could spend an unlimited amount of money. How would I solve this problem? And then while the solution you come up with might be unrealistic because you do in fact have budget constraints, it also might actually inspire a solution that you can use even though you do have budget constraints. So, so I find that technique really useful as well. So it's, you know, kind of removing the constraints. Okay, so that's three ideas in the structured creativity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, this is awesome. All right, sweet. So the unstructured creativity, remember, that's where like you've, you're doing creative work but not under so many constraints. So it's like you're doing abstract art or poetic writing or something like that. Okay, so one of my favorite techniques there is to look at lots and lots and lots of varied examples of a thing. So like you're trying to write poetry, go read a hundred poems, like of all different sorts from all different people. And it just kind of like seeds this intuition in your mind that you can then kind of tap into. So I really like that technique. And another one is to start with two things that are out there already that are really different from each other. You know, like let's say two paintings of completely different painting styles and say, what would it look like to fuse these? What would a painting that's like bridges the gap between them be? Like Democratic Party, Republican yeah, Party. There you go. Uh, <laughs> what would the future uh, of that be? Uh, that takes ideas from both. And then I'll, I'll give you just one more, which, which I like in the kind of unstructured domain, which is pick someone whose work you really admire. You know, let's say... Spencer Greenberg. <laughs> let's say Picasso or something like that, right? And then what you do is you look at their work and then you say, okay, what would it be like to create my own work in their style? What would a Spencer Greenberg done in the style of Picasso be like? And then you try to produce that. So anyway, that's, that's just a, f- a few ideas to get the creative juices flowing in both structured creativity and unstructured creativity. I feel like you got my creative juices flowing <laughs> for the rest of the day. Thank you, Spencer. Hey, thank you so much for appearing on the Psychology Podcast and, and offering so many resources for our listeners to uh, make their lives better. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.